So it is true that we have been in the general epistles for some time now, and there, it is like a drumbeat, this constant uh, acknowledgement of the fact that there are false teachers in the world. And so, yeah, I was uh, in the uh, passion of First John and talking about how th- there were these false teachers who were denying the deity of Christ or whatever, and I said, I have a list. I don't have a list. But about 75 of you came up to me right after the service and sent me emails or texts or talked to me and called me and said, I want the list. I don't have a list. But it became clear that uh, maybe something would be helpful to do, would be to do this uh, heresy workshop and talk about how to identify a heresy. So we were on vacation over the last couple of weeks. We were in Montana and my phone begins blowing up. And I, I pull it out and look at it, and there is the announcement for the heresy workshop that says, come and, um, to the spiritual formation workshop and learn about heresy taught by Scott Andrews. <laughs> you know, it kind of depends on how you read that. Um, I am going to teach the workshop. I'm hopeful that I don't teach heresy. We are a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. It's not a flag that we wave nor a badge that we wear. In fact, sometimes people attend here for a long time before they find out that we're part of this very small um, denomination called the CMA. Now, if you have attended a weekender, you've heard a little bit about the, the CMA. It was founded in 1887 by a Presbyterian pastor named um, Albert Benjamin or A.B. Simpson. That was back at a time when the really spiritual guys went by their initials, you know, R.A. Torrey and A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis and S.R. Andrews. And the... <laughs> That wasn't in my notes. Simpson was actually a Canadian born on Prince Edward Island, and later he attended Knox College, part of Toronto uh, University. Uh, He pastored a church in the area, but then eventually pastored Chestnut Street Presbyterian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, before moving uh, to 13th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. Now there, he soon became frustrated with that church's lack of evangelistic zeal or evangelistic passion, so he left and started an independent church called the Gospel Tabernacle right there in the city. Uh, By the way, through the study of the Scripture, he had also become convinced of, well, believers' baptism. But, But his primary purpose in planting the church was evangelistic, to reach, listen, to reach with the gospel the swelling number of immigrants to New York City coming through Ellis Island. I'm not going to get into the immigration or border debate this morning, but our response as Christians to immigrants should be Christ-centered. Now, after starting the church with people coming from literally all over the world, he soon um, started focusing on world evangelism. I'll spare the details, but the Christian Missionary Alliance, an alliance of Bible-believing Christians who were committed to world evangelism, we call that missions, was soon started. 
such that today the CMA still has a strong missions focus with about 800 missionaries in over 60 countries of the world. In fact, I often point out that the CMA is 10 times larger outside the U.S. than inside. That's quite intentional because our focus has always been worldwide. It's the largest evangelical denomination in many countries of the world because of this missions focus, just not in the U.S. Uh, Frankly, it's why I'm part of this group, because of their desire to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and listen and plant faithful churches. Is that biblical? Of course it is. Most of us know what is called the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28. It's about 40 days after the crucifixion and resurrection, and Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, so he led his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And one of the last things that he says to them is, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the ultimate purpose of missions. Dare I say it is the, one of the primary purposes of the church. Make disciples to become and f- multiply fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, to become ourselves more mature, more fully devoted to Christ and the gospel through His Word, um, to, to multiply ourselves, to see others become followers of Jesus with us and then baptize them. It's it's one of the reasons that we're still here, to do the work of evangelism, missions. Now do we do that? I'm going to talk about evangelism, sharing our faith with those around us in a couple of weeks. But, But for this morning, we continue our study in the epistles or the letters of John. In 1 John, we found the aged apostle Uh, John was writing to churches around Ephesus where he spent the last decades of his life, churches in Asia Minor. He he wrote because we saw there were those who had succeeded, succeeded. They They had left the church. They had gone out and become false teachers. They threatened to disrupt the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. So John wrote a letter in part to combat these false teachers, but more to give assurance to those who remain, to tell them, those who remain, you're in the right place. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come into flesh to die for the sins of people, if you seek to obey His commands, if you love other Christians, then you can be assured that you have eternal life. These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. (laughs) But then when John wrote 2 John, he still had this pesky problem of false teachers who seemed to be attempting uh, inroads into the church. They did so by themselves becoming itinerant false teachers, going place to place, sharing their heresies. So John wrote 2 John to a local church church, remember, the elect lady and her children, to encourage them, to remind them to walk in the truth and to love one another. But he also reminds them that many deceivers have gone out, that's an important phrase, have gone out into the world. So what are we supposed to do with these false teachers? Don't 
Don't receive them. Don't have them into your homes. Don't give them a platform in the church. Don't, don't show them hospitality. They are deceivers. They are antichrist. Strong words. Verses 10 and 11 of 2 John said, If anyone comes to you, does not bring this teaching, the teaching of the gospel, do not receive them into your house. Do not even give them a greeting, for the one who gives them a greeting participates in his evil deeds. You see, to, to give them a greeting, to give them a place to stay, to show them hospitality was considered an endorsement of them and their teaching. So, so don't do it. Don't expose yourselves. Don't expose your families. Don't expose the church to them. Don't even give them a greeting. But, but, but wait a minute. What about itinerant teachers who were Faithful, you know, true Christians who went from place to place sharing the gospel and the teachings of Christ. Huh. That sounds a bit like missionaries. What, what, what do we do with them? Third John. Third John. I would suggest that in addition to the centrality of the Great Commission, in addition to the narrative of the spread of the gospel in the church in the book of Acts, that 3 John is a great book to support the very clear idea of missions. We'll get to that in our text today. But, but as normal, when starting a new book, let's do a little introduction. Like 2 John, third, this third letter will only take us a, a couple of weeks to cover. You see, by word count, this is actually the shortest book in the New Testament. But don't let its brevity fool you. It is a faithful, it is filled with faithful, exemplary truth. It's a great book. So let's begin by reading our text for today. We're going to try and cover half the book today. The first eight verses say this. The elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brothers came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brothers, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For, for they went out, there's that phrase, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. What a great text to tell us how we as a church should support missions. Like Second John, the author simply identifies himself as the elder. Technically, he doesn't say signed Apostle John. Uh, but when you compare First and Second John with the Gospel of John, there are lots of similarities. It seems clear they came from the same author. And when you compare Second John with Third John, uh, we notice the author is the elder. And the similarities, again, indicate that they are the same author. So through a process of deduction, don't, doesn't even take brilliant deduction, just deduction, it seems clear that John wrote these letters along with the gospel that bears his name. This has been held by the church in conservative biblical scholarship through the centuries. 
Now, it is interesting to note that John would have been quite old by now, likely in his 80s. So listen closely, you octogenarians. In his 80s, yet we find him faithfully serving. As one of my commentaries suggested, the retirement age for Christian ministry is death. You can retire from whatever it is that you do to earn a, a, a paycheck, but the retirement age for living the Christian life and serving in the Christian life is death. He goes on to say that John would rather die in the pulpit than on the golf course. Now, that particular commentary author goes on to use John Calvin as an example. Calvin was an extremely industrious man, very busy for decades. Listen, he preached every day. In addition to preaching every day, he gave three divinity lectures a week. He wrote over a million words. That, that's an enormous amount. When poor health forced him to stay home, he still worked, counseling those who would come to see him, still writing letters. And so when Theodore Beza, who was also a reformer, once came to see him, he encouraged him to rest. And Calvin answered, would you that the Lord should find me idle when he comes? He died shortly thereafter. May we too be found faithful until the very end of our days. Now, unlike 2 John, which was written to a church, this one was written to, a, to an individual, a guy named Gaius. And now that name appears four other times in the New Testament, like twice in Acts and once in uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians. And when you study those texts, it seems clear that the guy in Acts is one guy and the guy in the Gaius in Romans and 1 Corinthians is another Guy And so attempts have been made to identify this Gaius with one of them, but it's not clear. Besides, it's known that Gaius is one of the most, some suggest, the most common name in the Greco-Roman world at this time. There were lots of Gaiuses, Gaii, I guess, <laughs> running around. So all we know about this one for sure is what John writes about him. He Notice he says to the beloved It's not a word we use very much anymore. That's a good word. To the beloved Gaius. He calls Gaius beloved four times in 15 verses. It's clear they shared a very special relationship. Perhaps they served together. Perhaps John was a recipient of Gaius' hospitality that we'll read about in a moment. But more likely, Gaius, I mean, John led Gaius to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, after noting that he, that Gaius is faithfully living the truth, John says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. My children likely referring to Gaius being one of his sons in the faith. You have anyone like that? Son or a daughter in the faith? Don't miss that John says to the beloved Gaius whom I love, in truth, we've seen that John uses the word love more than anyone else three times, three times in the first four verses. And Second John, writing to the church, to the elder, to the elect lady and her children whom I 
love in truth, same phrase. Here, as there, he means he loves guys because of their relationship in the gospel. I love you in truth or the truth because we are both followers of Jesus in his gospel. There, we've heard it over and over. There is a special bond of relationship that exists between followers of Jesus. It's thicker than blood because it's based on his blood. We love each other because we are in the truth. By the way, I mentioned John uses the word love three times in the first four verses. He uses the word truth four times in the first four verses because love and truth cannot be separated as much as many in the church try to do that today. Try to focus on love and, and dispense with truth and become tolerant and accepting of everything or we go to the other extreme and where we are, we are orthodox by, the, by, good, by golly. We are, we, are, we are orthodox, but we're not very loving. We're arrogant and unkind. They must be held in balance. Notice John uses the typical letter-writing convention of the day, writer to recipient, followed by a pr- what's called a prayer wish. I say that because this is the most typical of letter openings called salutations of that day than any other letter in the New Testament. Look specifically at what he says. It's stunning. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, this was very typical to pray or wish for someone's health, but I don't think John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just using typical words with a typical formula-like fashion. John says he actually prays for Gaius to prosper, to be successful, and to be in good health. Clearly, that speaks of physical health and material prosperity, since he goes on to say, just as your soul prospers. That's Interesting. And some of you sit there and say, all this that you've been saying about the prosperity gospel may not be true. There are those who have looked at this passage and like Kenneth Hagin or Earl Roberts and used it as the springboard for their ministries. Some in the prosperity gospel movement use, again, the text to support their ideas. And here it is, that God intends as we pray for prosperity and health, he always hears that prayer and intends for his people to be materially prosperous and physically healthy. The challenge with that, if God always hears that prayer, is the vast majority of believers in the New Testament and in the world today, except for this bubble we call the United States, were in fact not that. They, they, they suffered for being Christians. And the difference between that prosperity teaching and this text is this. They see it as a promise and goal, don't miss that word, goal of the gospel that we be materially prosperous and physically healthy. That is clearly not the case. The goal of the gospel is to make us spiritually prosperous, to make our souls right before God through the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. But, I said this verse is stunning. Let's not ignore the verse either. Let's not make it a guarantee for what it does not say, nor ignore what in fact it does say. Meaning, it is okay to pray for prosperous success and physical health. John prayed for that for Gaius. So, okay, so do that. Pray for our brothers and sisters to have prosperity and health for the good and cause of the gospel. 
Do, do you understand that? That's what he prayed for Gaius because Gaius used his prosperity to show hospitality to people, to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why God blesses us. John simply mentions it here in his salutation. It's not the goal of the letter. No, he says, I pray for your prosperity just as your soul prospers. And then he turns his attention there. Now, how did John know that Gaius' soul was healthy? How do you know it was prosperous? Verses 3 and 4, for I was very glad when brothers came. The implication is they had spent some time with Gaius and testified to your truth. That's interesting. That does not mean your truth like we use the phrase today, like everyone has their truth built on their own experience, personal experience and makes it relative. No, he goes on to say, they testified to your truth. Let me be clear about that. That is how you are walking in truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of what Christ has done to save you and, and, and make you a new creation in him. That's the truth. And this brings me great joy. One author said, Christian faithfulness brings supreme, that is a superlative, brings greatest joy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. John said, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. He could have said, he could have said, I have no greater joy than to know that you have material prosperity and physical health. But notice he doesn't. I have no greater joy than to know that your soul is prospering in the Christian faith. So go ahead, pray for prosperity, but rejoice in the work of the gospel, of the souls of people, especially the ones that you know and love. What is it that makes you happy? Joyful about those people that you love? Let's just think of your children, your sons and daughters. What is it that makes you happy about them? That they landed a good job with a great salary, that they enjoy a comfortable living, that they are healthy with no sickness or disease. John says, while I may pray for material, physical prosperity, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth of Christ and his gospel. That makes me most happy. Dare I say that we would pray more for, for spiritual prosperity of our children than physical prosperity. Could it be that we would want our children to be more spiritually pro prosperous and live in physical poverty, if that's what it took? Brings us to the specific example that John gives of Gaius walking in the truth, verses 5 to aid, and it is here that we see the responsibility and privilege of showing hospitality to traveling faithful brothers, teachers. And I'm suggesting, this is not a one-to-one -one correspondence here, but I'm suggesting that we see some principles regarding support of those on mission. We call them missionaries. Good things to learn here. Several principles. First, verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brothers, and especially when they are strangers. The principle is showing hospitality to missionaries, even if they are strangers to us. 
Now, you should know that these traveling teachers often carried with them letters of recommendation from someone that the church did know. For example, John, we're going to see that next week. Uh, John had written a letter regarding these guys. And so with that recommendation, Gaius acted faithfully even though they were strangers. You say, oh, but my goodness, you mean having strangers into your home that you don't even know? That could be risky, exactly. Yeah. While we are commanded to show hospitality to one another, technically hospitality, the word means Caring for strangers, having strangers in your home for the purpose of feeding and caring for them and meeting needs. Obviously, as it relates to these traveling believers, teachers, we we must be discerning. That's why he said in 2 John, don't have heretics in your home. We've got to be discerning. But, But if they are faithful, show hospitality. It's interesting, the didache which was a church manual of sorts written in the late 1st century or early 2nd century, gave instructions about showing hospitality to traveling teachers. It says this, Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord, but he is not to stay for more than one day, unless there is need, in which case he may stay another. But if he stays three days, he is a false prophet. And when the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. That could be read in many churches today. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. In what way can we show hospitality to missionaries in these days of nice hotels on every street corner? How do we show hospitality to missionaries, even those we don't know? I mentioned that we are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. That was intentional. Currently has 800 missionaries out on the field. Do we know them all? Of course not. Is it necessary that we know them all? Or is a letter of recommendation, if you will, from those whom we trust enough? Should we then show special care for those who travel about, go cross-culturally to share the gospel? Should we show them special care? In fact, should they be some of our heroes in the faith? Second principle, care for their needs, not just while they're here, but after they go. It's It's a technical phrase to speak of caring for them in their journeys. Verse 6, they testified of your love before the church. Next week we'll see there was a guy named Diotrephes speaking against them, but Gaius before the church loved them and cared for them. Further, you will do well to send them on their way, there's the phrase, in a manner worthy of God. couple of ideas here. First, we don't just care for them while we're here, wash our hands and say, uh, God be with you. We send them on with continued care. Send them on their way. Actively be involved in what they do by intentionally sending them. The idea is to provide for them as they go. How do we then provide for them in a manner worthy of God? This is not to just be token care. They are God's messengers. They are God's ambassadors. They come and go in the name of God. And so we should care for them in that way in a manner worthy of the name they bear. The care for them should not be minimal. It should be maximal. Next principle, verse 7. Most Important for they went out for the sake of the name. It's been 
noted that Third John, he never mentions Jesus or, or Christ, but here he clearly refers to him. We send them on their way because of the work they do. They are going out for the sake of the name. Incidentally, the words they went out are the same words as in 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. Speaking of these false teachers, but these guys, they went out from us, being of us. How do we know they were of us? Because they went out for the sake of the name. Clearly, the name of Jesus Christ, the only one by whom we must be saved, the only one to whom every knee will bow. I, I could have spent our entire morning on this principle. Here it is. The purpose of missions is for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. The purpose of missions is ultimately for God. In his book on missions... Let, entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper starts with this statement. Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, missions is ultimately, ultimately for the glory and worship of God. These brothers went out for the sake of the name. It's interesting to note that that phrase is used several times in the New Testament, usually in the context of suffering. Suffering for the name. It cost them something to go out for the sake of the name. Missions is ultimately for the glory of God. Let me say it like this. Missions is Penultimately, that uh, means of second importance. Missions is penultimately for the sake of lost people. It is ultimately for the name and fame of God. It is to make much of Him. Pierce Reedhead, a guy I've mentioned before, a missionary to Africa, once preached a message in which he said that he went to the mission field. The reason he went to the mission field was to improve on the justice of God. What did he mean by that? He went to tell people about Jesus because he did not think it fair that there were people who had not heard of Jesus. So he went to improve on the justice of God. He went with the ultimate goal of seeing lost people saved. The only problem was when he got there, he said he found that they weren't interested because they were, quote, monsters of iniquity. They loved their sin. Through a series of circumstances and experiences, he learned the truth of this text. Mission, missions exist for the sake of the name, for the glory of God to make much of Jesus. Reed had said it this way, we do missions because Jesus is worthy of those for whom he died. That's ultimate. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Do, do you see? Missions exist for the sake of the name. Which means this, and let me say this gently. There may be lots of reasons to do good things for people in need. You can dig wells, 
to provide clean drinking water. You can provide food for impoverished areas. You can provide much-needed medical care. You can build orphanages and hospitals and schools. Bundle that up all together, and it has as its goal to improve the living conditions of people. And that is a good thing. Christian mission has done all of that extremely well for centuries. I think it is right to say that Christian mission have built an awful lot, perhaps even most hospitals and orphanages in the world. But if we do all of that and leave the gospel behind, it is not Christian mission. There are lots of good organizations, non-Christian organizations that do that well, for which I am very thankful, but it is not Christian mission. We do all of the things that we do to build a bridge of love that will support the weight of the truth of the gospel. We lead with the gospel. We do it for the sake of the name, to make much of Jesus and his gospel. If we just listen, if we just improve people's lifestyles, but don't share the hope of Christ and eternal life, our help, while temporarily helpful, is eternally meaningless. So can I encourage you in all of the very good things that you do, and I hope that you do, Take the gospel. Take the gospel. Do not leave it behind. Do it for the sake of the name. Notice also verse 7, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing for the Gentiles. That simply means accepting nothing from unbelievers. Here is another principle. Christian missions should be funded by Christians. That does not mean, I want to be clear, that does not mean that you cannot use the funds of unbelievers like the United Nations or something like that. But any time that there are strings attached, you can dig wells with this money, but you cannot do it for the sake of the name. You say thank you, but no thanks. Because ultimately, what we do, we do in the name of Jesus. Finally, verse 8, or second to last verse 8, therefore we ought to support such men, such missionaries. It is our responsibility, not unbelievers, our responsibility to support missions, which brings me full circle to my introduction. We are a Christian and Missionary Alliance church, having chosen to be so in 1978 when the church was planted for the love of the name, for the love of the gospel, and seeing it shared around the world. And such work requires faithful funding. CMA has a missions cooperative fund called the Great Commission Fund. That's catchy. The idea is right from this verse and others like it. We ought to support such people who go out to share the good news of Jesus. We ought to support missions and it ought to be a priority for us. We ought to want to obey Christ and fulfill the Great Commission. So here is how it works at Alliance. If, if you're new here, this is how it, uh, it works at Alliance Bible Fellowship. When you give to missions at Alliance, we send 70% 
of, uh, of that to the Great Commission Fund to s- support such people, those 800 missionaries taking the gospel around the world. Now, we keep 30%, not for ourselves, but to fund other mission work. That's important. To, to fund those who have gone out from us who are part of other mission organizations. We do not think the CMA is the only group doing it well. No, there are many other groups that we love and help fund. We also like to help fund short-term missions trips, to, to fund local ministry mission work going on at the university like InterVarsity and Crew. We ought to fund such mission outreaches and give, and giving to missions should be a priority for us as a church and for you as a committed follower of Jesus. Interesting to note from this text, some go, but all fund. We all can give. In so doing, lastly, this is an incredible point. By supporting mission work, we become fellow workers with the truth. Do do you see that? In 2 John, he said, don't have false teachers in your homes. Don't give them a greeting because by doing, you participate in their evil deeds. Conversely here, when we support faithfully, when we support faithful missions, we participate in the work of the gospel. We become fellow workers with the truth. As I said, some go, but we can all give and become fellow workers with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel. Let me summarize this text in the words of Karen Jobs. I'm done. It's a lengthy quote, but it's really, really, really good. Look at this. Third John invites us to reconsider what we mean by hospitality. Hospitality in whatever form it takes today should not be offered only to our friends in the Lord, but even to strangers whose faith in Christ and work for the gospel our Christian leaders have validated. The Christian church is not to be a social club of cliques. The church is composed of all who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of their race, ethnicity, social position, or economic standing. Wherever and whenever those engaged in the work of the gospel have need of life-sustaining provisions in order to continue their work, they should be able to count on the generosity of their fellow Christians who will send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Generously supporting those sent out in the name of Christ is not primarily a tax deduction. It is a spiritual work that enables one to participate in the work of the gospel. Hallelujah. Can I encourage us as a church, can I encourage you as followers of Christ to give sacrificially to missions? Many of you know that over the past 12 years, we were in this building project. I believe that we needed to do it, but now it's built. We have some debt that we're paying off. Some of you faithfully give to debt retirement. I'm thankful for that. But I want to encourage all of us, listen carefully. I want to encourage all of us to give more to missions for the sake of the name. To be fellow workers with the truth here and around the world. I want us to give more to see the gospel taken to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age. Frankly, I'll just throw this in at no extra charge. I like to, I might charge you. I'd like to see some of our giving going to church planting. We don't only need to reproduce ourselves as Christians, we need to reproduce ourselves as faithful churches. We have communities around here 
within a 45-minute drive in which we would like to plant Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, word-saturated churches. I believe that that is what God calls us to do, but it will take the sacrificial giving of his people.